Our pretext to kind of get us into context, of course, is verse 14. Our primary text we're going to be trying to attack today are verses 16 through 20, because there's enough depth in there that we really don't want to run through it, especially when we talk about the problem of persecution that becomes so prevalent within the church when we do what God Christ calls us to. So read along with me, starting in verse 14, so we'll get our context. And we'll probably read beyond it uh, through verse 26, just so that we can kind of see where we've been and where we're going. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. A brother will deliver brother to death. And father is child and child will raise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you that you will have not gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. And if they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, don't fear them. There is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, on this beautiful, wonderful, chilly Sunday afternoon, Mother's Day, we turn to you, Father, and we ask for you to be glorified, that you would today minister profoundly to us in a way we understand. And God, I love you so much. And I thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you with this precious flock. What a wonderful thing to come home to. And I pray today that you would minister now. Draw us close. Provide that, God, which you intend. Bring salvation to this home. Peace to this home. Restoration, encouragement, strength to this home. And here, God, now I pray you would be glorified in the way that brings you great pleasure. Have your spirits work upon us now, we pray, as we commit every moment of this time to you on this Communion Sunday. Thank you. Immerse me in your spirit. Come upon me in such a way, God, that you would be seen and that you would speak to each one of us exactly what we need to hear now. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any day, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. Here's our pretext. Jesus has spent an all-nighter praying. He has been up all night praying. And he comes down from the mountain where he was praying alone with the Father. And he immerses himself then in a pool of disciples. There are many And from that pool of disciples, 
Jesus is going to pick 12 as emissaries, as ambassadors, as apostles. Now, the way we have it written in the Gospels, it makes it sound like, and we would do this if we were watching it as a movie, we kind of get a little bit of backstory of the four fishermen and, and Matthew, the tax collector. But understand, for the most part, it wouldn't have been that if we were living there. It isn't like, well, of course Jesus chose Peter or of course he chose John. They were just amidst a big sea of people. And for the first time, in essence, Jesus is going to pull from this massive sea of people 12 individuals, and it is important to recognize of those he chose, which is common, by the way, in the day and even to this day for a Jewish rabbi to take among a pool of students those which he would choose for personal time. They would live with him. They would walk with him. Discipleship from a Jewish mindset was not you sat in a program where somebody just embedded information into your memory chip. Because discipleship requires us to understand life is to be lived. Now, we can quote doctrine. I can quote doctrine from this seat. And from that, we can say, where do you stand on this issue or that issue? How, how come God is this? Or, and, well, what does this scripture mean? But if that's all we call our Christianity, we're going to be really, at best, really, really weak. Because Christianity is based upon something we chant as a slogan. It's not about religion, although it really is in the sense that religion just means devotion. It's about relationship. But here's the problem. Relationship can never be taught from a stool. Relationships have to be taught by your eyes, not your ears. This is why we can read in Scripture what real love is, but what we've seen in our lives with our families, we would be more prone to imitate, even though we know it's wrong. Even though we would say something is love when it's not, we would say it because what we've seen has indoctrinated our lifestyle. Well, Jesus, like every other rabbi, if you will, has chosen now men to walk with him specifically, intimately, closely. And up to this point, they've watched him heal. They've watched that no one was too sick, too dead, too unclean for the hand of the perfect almighty God. Jesus was unintimidated by death, by filth, by the entire demonic world. And we walked with him. We watched him. And now it's evident Jesus sends us out. This will not be the go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, like we'll read in Mark 16 at the end of the, of the gospel after his resurrection. We can't preach the resurrection of Jesus yet because we hadn't seen him even die. But this was his message. He sends out these 12, two by two, which means, unfortunately, somebody gets Judas. That would be a bummer. In the end, you're like, dang it. That was the one, that was my lab partner. And he sends them out and he says, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go even to the Samaritans. The first place I want you to go are to those who already claim me, to those who already say they're mine. And I want you to give them a simple message. I'm coming. I'm coming. The kingdom's coming. What you going to do about it? And that's where a revival starts. 
is in the church. Revival doesn't start with the lost because the church, only the church can be revived. We're the only ones living. Everybody else needs to be revived. We need to be revived. And Jesus now has sent them out with this purpose. Go to my, those who claim to be my people, who claim to belong to me, and tell them I'm coming. And might I say that's at the beginning of our message here. He is coming. He had said, I remind you in verse 15, how imperative, verses 14 and 15, how imperative it was for you not to let the dust of previous rejection shape your future. And he tells us something a little intriguing, don't you think? That somehow on that day of judgment, which is also coming, like it or not, that there will be levels of judgment more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than those who reject Jesus? Have you thought that through? That somehow, I mean, I think any judgment sounds bad. How about you? I mean, I don't, I don't on a scale of one to ten, I don't want a zero, a point, 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 one. But now Jesus tells us this, and now for our text, it hinges on three commands. But these three commands have to start with Jesus' clear assessment of the situation that necessitates them. And please hear me in this. I remind you, Jesus is sending us, here at least in this point, to the church to startle it back to life, to defibrillate it, to grab the paths and go, clear, papoosh! So that the church could go, hey, he's coming. Let's deal with the clarity of his coming. And this is how he starts it in verse 16. As he assesses the situation. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, I, any of you, and we kind of read it and we kind of go, yeah, 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 yeah. But have you really thought that through? You're like, you know, if I were to think wise, would I really put serpent as the thing? If I were to put harmless, would I put doves? And I remind you, Jesus is talking to sheep. That's what he tells us at the beginning of verse 16. He says to sheep, be harmless like doves. Sheep. Cotton balls with legs. Sheep. And he says, I want you to be harmless. And I've got to be honest, in the beginning of that, we kind of nod and we go, okay, we'll probably quote that someday, but we really don't even grasp what in the world Jesus is saying. This is why we need to slow down. Behold is our first command here. And if you will, it's behold your ministry. I remind you, he is sending them out to the people who claim to be his. If that were today, we would be saying that he was sending us to the church. And he says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, notice, by the way, does not say that Jesus is sending the sheep to the wolves or to even where the wolves are, but rather in clear understanding that they are all around us at the moment. Jesus is not saying, I'm sending you to the wolves. That sounds really cruel. He doesn't say, I'm sending you where the wolves are. He says, in the midst of these wolves, I'm sending you out. That's what he tells us here. Now, Paul, by the way, will pull from this same concept in Acts chapter 20 when he speaks to the Ephesian elders in Miletus. When he says that after his departure, you know, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, drawing disciples after themselves. So let me get a little bit of an assessment of who we are as we talk about this. Sheep, what do we know about us? Defenseless without our shepherds. Do you know the only potential offensive weapon of a sheep, what it is? They have unusually hard heads, but they don't use them for anything but each other. Isn't that ironic? They don't mind ramming heads on each other. Now, granted, it's a little bit cushioned. We can grant you that unless, of course, they've been sheared. 
But when there is an unclear shepherd, they feel unsafe. They will, in essence, try to be alpha sheep. And the way they do that is they ram heads. So we can be known to be defenseless to our predators, but offensive to each other by banging heads. Boy, that's a really great assessment. Don't you love that Jesus calls us this? But if we, and kind of, let me make this clear, the, one of the greatest acts of hatred would be an act of giving you a false sense of security, of leading you to believe that you actually could defend yourself when you couldn't. So, first of all, who we are. Defenseless, cotton balls that are hard-headed against each other, but defenseless against our predators of ourselves. Let's talk about the predators. Wolves. What do we know about them? Well, first of all, they're predatory. But what that means is it isn't like they sting you or bite you because you bump into them and you've irritated them. They're predatory. They are looking for victims. They're looking for sheep. They tend to hunt in packs. That is important to note. They tend not to travel alone. They tend to, in their motive of attack, isolate a specific sheep by itself, steal it away from its flock, then kill it and then destroy it. In the simplest sense, a wolf is a very fair icon for what Jesus said in John 12 when he talks about the thief coming to steal, kill, and destroy. If we were to put that on our, you know, as a verse, maybe the icon could be a wolf. It doesn't come to accidentally find this thing in its pocket. It came with the intent to steal. But stealing wasn't the end. Stealing was the means to the end. And then to steal, but then to kill. And killing wasn't even the end. The ultimate end was to destroy. Of course, Jesus would contrast that with this. I've come that you may have life and life more abundantly. So on one side, we're defenseless. On one side, we are only offensive to each other with our hard heads. And our only hope is our shepherd. On the other side of it, our predators are numerous, united, under the same cause. Think that through. So Jesus tells us then, behold your situation. Compared to the opposition, we are outgunned, outmighted, and outnumbered, but we are not outmatched. All victory depends on our shepherd. My responsibility is what he tells us below. But then I have to ask myself, why would a great shepherd send sheep out amidst wolves? Well, there's only one decent reason, and that is to rescue other sheep. See, one thing we are built as sheep, sheep have this innate sense to recognize the voice of their family and recognize the voice of their shepherd. Unique, by the way. Now, there are certain other animals you could probably get that to some degree. For instance, dogs. But have you noticed, dogs, by the way, are, I think, one of the best examples of ADHD there is. Because on one side of it, and we just having spent this week near the beach, we watched, there were a lot of dogs. And it was interesting because a dog could be very well behaved next to its owner until another dog comes along. Then the next thing you know, every dog turns into a puppy. 
and I don't know if that's playing or biting. I don't think they even understand. But those of us who are guys, we understand that was pretty much our early teen years anyways. But you kind of get the idea. And then somewhere down the line, the master, the, the, you know, the dog, the owner is kind of going, hey, oh, and they're trying to say stop and basta and all of these other things. And the dog doesn't care for the moment until they think there's some form of, you know, punishment if they don't. And they do understand, they do may understand the one who feeds them. But they don't necessarily get their family the same way. But sheep, on the other hand, they do. And understand what Jesus is sending the sheep for are sheep that have gotten to the point now where they're no longer really familiar with the master's voice. And now the only voice they may hear is each other. But think about the beauty of that. Because if you were to do something stupid and then leave because you were embarrassed by this, whatever the behavior was, the scariest part usually isn't me, I'd like to think. It isn't like, you know, although people are like, I think he knows. I, you know, look, God isn't going to tell me about you unless there's an important reason for it. It isn't like I go, God, give me the dirt on Sarah. I mean, I, 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 to be honest, I think God has enough to deal with it. I mean, the, the point of it is, is that I, there's that point where you come in, it's like, but will there be a family waiting for me? And that's exactly, by the way, what Paul says when he talks about the one that he said to hand over to Satan in, if he, in uh, 1 Corinthians 1. Because the person was doing all this sexual sin and the, the church was applauding it for their tolerance. But when the man was being restored, he told them to reaffirm your love for him, to forgive them and comfort them lest they be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. And he goes, look at sometimes what happens is that's not just the pastor's job. It's the sheep's job to get out there and let them know, hey, there's still a home here. If you're willing to repent, there's still a chair for you, son, at the table. Well, with that in mind, please hear me in this. The shepherd has sent his sheep. And he's sending them because there are sheep that need to hear that voice. We recognize the environment is hostile and it is predatory. And because it is hostile and it is predatory, and though they are already surrounded, if you will, and you can hear the howling and you can hear the snarling and you can see the teeth, we are not the rescuers. What we really are, we're not the weapon. We're the tool for that rescue. Our shepherd's the one who's going to rescue. He's sending us out to let them know. He's coming. And for a sheep in peril, his coming would be great news if you want to be rescued. So he tells us this, therefore. I remember the first one of these is behold your ministry. Because things are that volatile, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And I still go, what? But traditionally, the first thing I would do in a point like this is kind of go back to the original language and see if I can get something there. And boy, does it blow wide open. Now, many of you might be familiar with the, the basic word for wisdom. It's the word sophos. Sophia, for instance. Get that from the word, and it means, in essence, then, to be wise. And in the American school system, when you go to secondary school, your second year, you were called a sophos moros, or a sophomore. Sophos... Like Sophia means wise. Moras, like moron, means fool. So a sophomore means a wise fool. But that's not the word that's used here. Most commonly, when you see the word wise or wisdom, you'll see the word Sophia or Sophos. And that's the word we naturally apply to it when it says be wise as serpents. But the word that he uses instead is the word phronimas. Phronimas, like frain, means to be thoughtful focused, concerted. The opposite might be to be scatterbrained, to be deadheaded, to be 
inebriated, drunk, intoxicated. And all of a sudden, this makes so much more sense. Now, in the Middle East, there are certainly snakes that, if you were to put an icon for snakes, I might go with the king cobra. It's kind of a cool thing. God made it with that cool little fan blade, and then he did like that cool carving. You know, he kind of did like some little makeup on the sides. It's a pretty cool little thing. But if you've ever watched snakes, now, now I'd love to develop this because there are certain people in here, like I don't want to say who because I don't want to embarrass Daniel, who really are very nervous by even the thought of snakes. So let me develop it for a second just for the fun of it. Please understand. There's something about, because when we initially think, okay, the wisdom of a snake, the fact that this thing's on its belly and it kind of slithers through, the fact that it can move at all is kind of brilliant. But, but think about it. If you ever watch one of those nature shows, and for whatever reason, I love those nature shows. I hate the first two minutes where they always want to tell me 200 million years ago. Once I get past that, I can get to the point where I can go, wow, this is really awesome. Because you watch, and you, you ever watch those things and you watch that like goofy little lizard that walks on the water, for instance, and that's how it like attracts a mate. It's like, blah, 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 blah. I don't know. I tried it with my wife. It didn't work, but then I sunk. But anyways, it worked, I guess. I got her. Anyways, but, but, but there, I love watching those shows and I'm like, God, you're so creative and you're so fun. And then I look and I watch snakes and there, you know, there's a part of me as a boy. I'm like, oh yeah, the predator thing. Right? But you watch them. It's like their whole body is like still. Until they can feel emotion. Because they want, they're hungry. And so their whole body is, is united for one purpose. Dinner. And so it, it sort of sits there. It feels the vibration of the ground. And without moving everything, it moves whatever is necessary. It's eyes or whatever. Right? And it looks at Daniel. As Daniel's walking through the hedge. And it sort of sees. And it decides whether it wants to eat something with all that hair. And it kind of looks... Right. And then as it starts to move, every motion that snake does is for one purpose. It isn't like texting with its tail, you know, trying to figure out how to say hi to the girl snake down the way somewhere, slithery or slitherina or something. It all depends on where you're from. Right. And so forth. This whole body is focused on Daniel. Right. And it's sort of staring and it rises up. And it's kind of watching, and it's still, and you know it gets still. And the reason it gets still, you know, it's like when it gets still, that's a bad thing. Because you know that means that its whole body is contemplating this specific moment to go, and that's it. And, of course, at that point, Daniel's worst nightmares have come true. Now, in all of that, get that concept, because that's what we understand in the Middle East, and get that concept. And he goes, now, listen, I'm sending you like sheep in the midst of wolves. I need you to be focused, undistracted in your mission. Because to be distracted makes you unaware and making you unaware in the sight of wolves is a really bad idea. You want to be at every point very keenly aware. Now, some of us, you know what that's like. But I'd like, to cons- I'd like you to consider this as human beings. I had the privilege again of driving. I've discovered some things in driving. One is I discovered, of course, again, the relationship my wife and I have when I drive. It's a very different dynamic than normal. Uh, it's a very fun dynamic in some ways. Uh, I, it was fun because, you know, we're dealing with roundabouts. And in, in Italy, of course, everybody thinks every, it's a race, you know. And, uh, I mean, when you could get paced by a, a, by a lorry, you know you're in trouble. 
And uh, we get to this point a couple days into it where we are hitting one of those roundabouts, which traditionally are not necessarily the, the most congenial moments in our particular relationship. And the clutch goes out on the car we're driving. And, of course, the last thing I'm going to do in the world is tell her we're in the roundabout, you know, and it's like it was good for her prayer life, you know. But so we wait, kind of wait until we pull over and it's like I'm kind of she's like, what's going on? I'm like, well, OK, so let me just tell you the pedal's not coming up on the clutch. That's a bad thing, right? Yes, that's a very bad thing. So I had to learn words like frizione, which means clutch in Italian. But, but I, I get the idea in all of this. But as, as we're driving, I realize that when you're looking for something, when you're trying to focus on something, you turn the music down. Like that does something for your eyes. And I think that's just really interesting. We're trying to find something or whatever, and one of our children decides they want to be blessed. They want to bless us with whatever the music they're listening to or whatever, or a conversation or whatever. And there's certain moments you don't want to sound grumpy because you already kind of had really fun repartee anyways getting there. But, you know, you're kind of, and then you're kind of like, yeah, okay, how do I politely say, you guys, I need a quiet because I need to concentrate. And the reason I say that is put that together for a second. There's something about hearing as well as seeing that plays into our concentration. And the reason I say that is we live in a world right now where we're constantly cramming into our ears so much that I don't even know if we know how to concentrate anymore. I'm going to get to this point where it's, it's kind of like if you're going to sit on a tra- in a train, you know, hopefully not on one, but if you sit in a train, it just seems weird almost not to stick something in your ears. I mean, just for fun, sit there, open your Bible, and just look at everyone and watch how uncomfortable everybody gets. And how many people leave the train car by the next stop? They're like, hi, everybody. Okay, I got a seat now. I mean, there's something about that. And understand, when he's saying, I need you to be concerted. I need you. Because I'm sending you out, I remind you, I'm sending you out to those who already claim me. And I need you to tell them I'm coming. I can't have you be distracted at a moment like this and convoluted. What I need is for you to be focused on this. For two reasons. One is you won't complete your mission if you don't. And two, because you'll become somebody else's meal if you're not careful. So I get it now. And of course, this is the same word, by the way, for what it's worth. It's what it was used in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, when it says, Do all things without grumbling or complaining or disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, that'll be the one coming up here. Let me give you the ones for the other, sorry. Let me say this. In Matthew, there will be three different places where he'll use this word, this word us. He'll use it, by the way, interesting, when he talks about a wise man building his house upon the rock. That may sound familiar to you from Matthew 7, that's 7.24. But the other two, they just seem to really bring this to light. Matthew 24.45, where he talks about who is a faithful and wise servant. And the wise and faithful servant, and there's that wise word again, is the one who is watchful for his master's coming. He, he, and he goes, on the other side, he contrasts that to a guy who so doesn't care and he's so scattered in everything he does that he gets drunk with the, with the other servants, and he beats the other servants. And, he, and it's just like his whole life is so opposite of somebody that's really excited about the master coming. And he uses that there. He also uses it in Matthew 25, verses 4 through 9, when he talks about the ten widows. I'm sorry, the ten virgins. I'm sorry. If you remember, and the oil that was in the lamp. And he says they were wise ones. They were watchful of their master's coming and therefore kept oil in their lamps. They didn't get careless. Now listen, beloved. Because it took me a long time to realize, and I pray it wouldn't take you as long as it took me, to realize that carelessness can really be a sin. 
And we do it sometimes. We can be intentionally careless. And if we were honest with ourselves, it's to allow ourselves to sin. You meet somebody and they're cute, but you know they're not saved and you know you're not supposed to be unequally yoked. But you can choose to be careless and then find yourself in the middle of something. You know you have certain convictions. And though you know that if you give it any thought at all, if you were actually focused, you know that stepping in this direction is going to put you in a place where you know you are going to be at, at best confronted to, to, to transgress that conviction and at worst wake up on the other side of it and go, what in the world am I doing? I've broken something I know I shouldn't. And he says, carelessness is the road to all of those failures. And I can't afford, you can't afford for you to be careless if I'm coming. Well, you can't afford it either way. God deliver us from, especially from intentional carelessness. Well, what we're doing is allowing ourselves as if somehow on the other side of it, we can make ourselves a victim of how in the world did I get here? It would be like closing our eyes in a car, taking your hands off the steering wheel, gunning it with the gas, with the accelerator. And then once you got in an accident, go, oh, my goodness, what just happened? I'm in. I'm a victim. But if we were attentive at all, we wouldn't be in this mess. He says, I need you to be wise as serpents. And I get it. So then I have to go with the second one now. What does it mean to be harmless as doves? To be harmless as a dove to a group of people he already said were sheep. Well, again, I went back to the original language. And there, again, it blew open for me. The word, by the way, for harmless here is the word akerios. Now, by the way, there are words for harm, volatile, violent, for instance, evil, harmful. None of those words are these words. Ah, normally, by the way, is a negative. Uh, For instance, Gnostic means to know, and agnostic means they don't know. Literally, when someone says they're agnostic, what they're calling themselves is an ignoramus. I don't know if you know that. Uh, To say you believe in God, you may say you're a theist. To not believe in God, you're an atheist. You just added an A, and that made a negative. And there's the A at the beginning of this, or an alpha, actually. Now, the word kerios, by the way, means to be mixed, to be, well, to be inserted or to be polluted. Or diluted. And that's the word, by the way, that's used here with that negative. The word for harmless, interestingly enough, in the simplest sense means to be unmixed, undiluted, or simplest sense, pure. I think it's interesting that the word for diluted or convoluted actually means harmful, if you think about it. Because if Christ lives inside of us, anything we add to that is not, it can never be an improvement. Jesus living inside of us should be everything. His spirit dwelling inside of us. You can't get more pure than God. And we add to that something. And he goes, I can't have you do that. Now, why a dove then? It's the same word again. That As I jumped ahead of myself and quoted earlier, Philippians 2, 14 and 15, when he talks about grumbling and not, not grumbling or complaining, disputing that you would become blameless and harmless children of God. Apparently complaining and disputing intoxicate us by putting toxins in us is the idea here. It convolutes us or dilutes us or pollutes us. And Romans 16, 19, my favorite text for this, 
Paul is writing to a church, by the way, he had never been to. And he tells them, your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise as what is good, wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. The word simple there is the word we see here, the word akerios. In the simplest sense, what Paul says is, I want you to have a Ph.D. in what is good and blesses people but I want you to be absolutely ignorant, untouched, unpolluted, untainted, unjaded by what is evil. And there are some that are like, well, you can't really know how it is until you try it. Sure, you can't really know what it's like to actually experience getting hit by a car unless you jump in front of it. But I might suggest you don't. And there are so many times where the enemy says, just try it a little bit so you have an experience with it. The problem is you can't take back an experience, can you? The moment you experience, because the enemy is so good at lying about how little shame you will experience on the other side. How little pain. In other words, he lies about the bill. And he gives you the menu without the prices. As I look around this room, and I'm not trying to insult anyone, I conclude myself in this list. I would assume that everyone in this room, if we were to go someplace and they opened up a menu and we knew we were paying and it didn't have prices, we would want to leave. There's never a, oh, good, it's one of those kind of restaurants. And we're not dumb enough to assume maybe it's free. Right? Sure, lobster, troubadour, and a beautiful big steak. Sure, they look like nice people. Chances are they're just going to say, you know why we didn't put prices? Because it's Free. See, we know better. But so why is it when the enemy tells us that we somehow believe him? Go ahead, fool around with that thing. Fool around with that person. Fool around with that situation. Be careless and jump into that situation. Don't worry about it. Somehow it'll work out. Try a little bit of that and try a little bit of that. So at the end of it all, you could kind of say, I tried it, I didn't like it. You know what? <laughs> One of the greatest testimonies you can say is God delivered me from it by me never getting there. And he tells us, I want you to be that kind of harmless. Unpolluted. Undiluted. As doves. Why doves? Well, I do find a couple interesting things about them. But the one that really stands out is if you've been to Israel, doves are so unique in the sense that you can only find them white. I mean, here, sometimes it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, what's the difference between a dove and a pigeon? Pigeons are bigger and fatter. They're kind of cousins or something. I mean, you kind—I of, mean, you can see doves. There are certain places, you know, you want to see. And I used to love to do this. You put crumbs on someone's head, and then they get attacked by the doves. They don't seem so peaceful at that moment. But I, I get the idea here. When you're in when you're in Israel, you see doves. You know what a dove is. You don't come. I don't think. I think that's a pigeon because they do have pigeons. And it isn't like it doesn't matter what a pigeon does. A dove ain't into it. And that's one thing we've noticed because there are guys that actually. So we could put our pigeons with our doves, but our doves will die. Not because they get pecked to death, but because, to be honest, there's something about them that gets so disgusted by the pigeon, they won't even eat. Because there are places where we've gone where they raise, like, the really cool pigeons where they, like, send messages, you know. And you kind of say, okay, we'll send it back to this place. We'll drive to Jerusalem 22 miles away, and we'll put a message, and it'll fly back to its camp. And then the guy will actually text us or, you know, send us a picture of, the, you know, he knows where he's going. Pigeons are cool, too. Don't get me wrong. But doves, 
they're like, they're white and they're white and they're white and they're not going to go and they're not going to mix. And look, and this is not a message about race here. This is about the idea here that you ain't mixing with what you shouldn't be mixing with. There's the idea. So let me ask you something. What if this was the end of the message here? What if Jesus is like, and by the way, we've gotten to a verse. You can see why we're only covering a few. He's like, look at you need to recognize, and, and, and if you are honest with yourself, if we are honest with ourselves, we know that this environment is not an environment that is going to welcome our getting saved. Hey, people don't have a problem with you calling yourself a Christian until they discover you became a real one. You know, one that actually wants people to know about Jesus and you're excited about him and you really become contagious. Well, then you're a threat. And there's no one that's going to applaud that. It's strange because they're same people that, you know, would ra- they'd rather have you doing drugs and sleeping around than actually being sober minded and, and loving people and being kind. And I, I don't understand that either. Jesus goes, that's your environment. But here's the worst part, beloved. It's the church, if you will, that he's sending them to. It's the people who call on him. And he goes, they're not going to applaud this either. The wolves that are positioned have made their home in the church. And there's our problem. This is, and because of that, I need you to be wise. Focused, undistracted, and undiluted. I need you to be one that isn't so busy blending in with the lost world around you. That if, we, if the Lord were to come right now and we both stood before the Lord us and that individual you've blended with or that group, that they would look with this amazing look of betrayal saying, I, wait a minute, you're a Christian? The moment we accepted Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 1.13, God sealed you in his innocence by his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit started doing a work. We sang song after song after song today about God being, Jesus being holy set apart, unique. And the spirit of the Holy, Holy, Holy One lives inside of you, transforming you into His Holy, Holy, Holy image. Which means any attempt we have now to blend in with the lost world around us fights the construction work and every intent that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. You are fighting what God wants to do in you. Because he wants to make you weird. Not weird like aluminum foil on your head and you run around dodging gamma rays. You know, running around with like, you know, anyways, with a black cape or something. I'm talking about like, like unique in the sense of people that are like dead and empty and lifeless and joyless and have no moral or no moral standard and they're proud of their tolerance. And you're coming into this thing with solid resolutions that they could not possibly have any other way. Seeing things like you, they could never have seen before. We can't blend in with that. And it's so beautiful that Jesus is well aware of this. So listen, the other two pick up fairly quickly. <clears throat> but it is important to recognize we are to behold our situation, behold our ministry. And the ministry is one of rescue, where we are used as tools for it. My resources, personally, I'm feeble. And that's all right. Because of that, I know... <clears throat> that I, how I must be in it. And I must be concerted, not convoluted. I must be conscious, sober, straight-headed, and determined. 
Second, he says then, not only just behold my ministry, but now he'll say, beware of men. Verse 17, beware of men. Now, ladies, this is not a specific message to you. Beware of men. But he is making really clear here that there are people who are going to oppose you. Now, he doesn't say these are wolves and he doesn't say they're not. But he does make clear they're opponents. But I want to remind you again, you are being sent to those who call on the name of God, who claim to be his. That's the people he's speaking of here. And it seems clear that they use two primary tools, according to this. It says, for they will deliver you up to councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues. Delivering you up to councils, if you will, this is sort of a fancy word, not much, is the word litigation. They want to legislate against your Christianity. If they can, in essence, make it against the law to wear a cross, carry a Bible, share Jesus with people, believe that the Bible says everything that it says is truth because that's hate speech. If they can legislate that, then you have this problem because you have to break a law to obey Jesus. Now, the Bible makes really clear that the sons of disobedience, the entire world, in essence, like we once walked, is according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, that's Ephesians 2, 2. And that the entire world is under the sway or under the influence, if you will, of the wicked one. That's 1 John 5, 19. The world is intoxicated by the mindset of Satan. Understand what litigation is. But let me make this clear as I kind of go for the jugular on this. As you're aware of this point, I've never been my intent to ever hide the truth or dance around it. I kind of rather just go straight for it and pull the plaster off quickly. We live in a culture, by the way, and in part of it is because of a couple of deep thinkers, if you will, like people like Carl Rogers, Jung, Freud, who basically came up with this concept that man was basically good. Because man was basically good, then all you need to do is find out where they got tweaked, because somehow every man gets tweaked, every girl gets tweaked, they get messed up somewhere, they get mucked up, and you have to go to go back to find out where that problem is. So you spend all of your time digging back in your past to find the problem. How do you move forward when you spend all your time looking behind you? And the best you can get at that, then, is not that thing anymore. Does that make sense? There's no positive, it's just not bad. On the other side of it, the Bible makes clear we are basically evil people. We are born evil people. You don't have to teach a child to disobey. They'll do that on their own. Funny, if you have never said the word no, somehow I think they would still know it. Defiance. My brother, who is my pastor, says, by the way, you want to teach your children to be criminals? Simply leave them alone to their own devices. That's that simple. I learned how to be a criminal from that. Nobody taught me. And I realized... (laughs) That's where we start this. Excuse me. We start this being that we're basically evil people. So how do you stop people from being evil? How do you stop it? Well, understand, this is my impression now built from that concept, that man is as evil as you let him be. So this is why, by the way, in Romans, in Romans, this just in, in Romans it tells us that we are to obey the government not just for the sake of consequence, but for the sake or wrath's sake, but for conscience sake. See, there's a difference with us. 
See, without a conscience, without a conscience to stop us or to slow us, we have to have a consequence to stop us. As Christians, we should not have to be driven by consequence. We should be driven by by our own conscience. That says, that's bad. And we go, yeah, but what's the payoff? How bad? What's the cost? What's gonna, what is it going to cost me if I do this? There's the problem. That's the unsaved world, and that's where they're at. So what we do is we create laws so that we can say, this line can't be crossed. And, of course, the inevitable question is, well, what's the, what happens if I do? Right? I mean, we were all kids. You know, we were all teens at one point. We were like, don't step past that line, and if I do, what happens? Right? We know that. It's built within us. And so we have to make the punishment bad enough so that you won't cross the line. And now, of course, we live in a place where if you make the punishment bad enough, it's a cruel punishment, and therefore that's unfair to the person. So understand what you have in a culture, in a society, is we try to build these walls to keep people from going mental, from, from basically from keeping people look like the purge day every day. So we have a group of people who are under the sway of the wicked one. A group of people who are, if you will, developed and controlled by the prince of the power of the air that have to decide what is right and wrong and then build walls and say, don't go past this line. So what are the walls? It can't be things that limit their desires. So it has to be things that limit what they don't like. Like, don't you dare share Jesus with children. Like, don't you dare preach Jesus to me. Don't you dare. And you get it. But you dare tell me that what I'm doing is wrong because that will make me feel bad and that will be bad for my self-esteem. Well, before self-esteem, there was something called honor. And honor happened because we were actually people that were willing to be noble and do something of dignity, to have a character and a moral fabric that was actually worth displaying. So please understand this. When he tells us here that they're going to, deliver you up to councils, they're going to create these laws, and the purpose of these laws are to shut you up. And I want to warn you again, the problem is, the people he's speaking of are people in the church. I'm a Christian. I'm just not your kind of Christian. And we're not talking about you're more charismatic, or you sing hymns, or you like wearing a robe, or whatever. We're talking about, yeah, but I don't believe all that stuff. I believe the stuff that, I like. I take all the blessings, but I just don't take all of the demands. It's pretty much, if you think about it, what people say. I'll totally take God giving me good stuff and getting me out of hell and giving me warm fuzzies and the jiggles and the squidgies or the whatever. I'm happy with that. But the whole idea of surrendering my life or picking up my cross and following him or him telling me what's right and wrong, I'm not into that. I'd rather kind of make it up myself and let Jesus basically be my servant and I tell him what's right and wrong and in the end of it all, you better get me out of hell. Yeah, good luck with that, standing before God and seeing how that plays out. And he goes, I want to warn you. When you go, there are going to be people that are like, I don't think what you're doing is is legal. You know what? We do not break the law. The only time that we ever resist a law is when it demands that we sin. And what I've found is, that's part of why God gave us the brains he gave us. In Israel, like several other places, and it's dangerous that we're recording this, uh, <clears throat> that it's illegal to share the gospel intentionally with a minor, somebody under 18. But you're dealing with teenagers who are naturally rebellious. So what happens 
you can answer questions. So if you started a conversation, hypothetically, like someone may have done sometime ever before, somewhere, sometime, where you say, do you know what's against the law for me to say certain things to you? You would imagine a teenager would say, like what? Well, now you're asking questions. It is interesting how you, and again, I'm, I'm, you get the idea. The point of it is, because I want to warn you, there will be, beware of men, because one of the tools they will use is the government. But let me tell you the other tool they'll use. Not just litigation, but intimidation. They will scourge you in their synagogues. Now, what happens when you get scourged in a synagogue? Now, I remind you, it's clear who it is. It isn't like unbelievers are taking you into a synagogue to scourge you. To scourge means they're publicly whipping you naked in front of people. Why do they do that? To humiliate you. To embarrass you so bad that you'd never do it again. And I want to remind you again. This is the people who call on him. Now, again, this isn't everyone. Jesus has a pool of disciples here. But he tells us, I want to warn you. What's the lowest level of intimidation? My guess is visual. The look. The stare. Maybe it starts with eyebrows come with it. You can usually tell where a person's from by the way they give you a disdainful look. Haven't you, have you noticed that? You know, if you're traditionally classic white bread, you know, you know, sort of scone-eating British. It's just a look. It's just it. That's all. But if you get to some places a little bit more hot-blooded, like the Caribbean, it's going to get vocal. Somewhere in between that two is the eyebrows, right? You get to look at them. Head starts to turn. And, you know, once somebody starts rising up, you know, you right? But it's like, you know, it goes through levels. The question is, how many levels will you go through? I mean, think about all the games you play where the whole goal is to get to another level. I'm going to take it to another level because I'm going to win. I'm going to take it to another level because I won. I'm going to take it to another level. And then when Christians are like, I just want to be in level one where there's like no resistance. And then somehow in that, we think that God's going to be like, here's the gold medal for really not going anywhere. Can you imagine? It's like God's like, well done, good and faithful servant. You did nothing so well. So there we are. Don't do it. Don't give me a look. Don't, you know, you know what's amazing is we think about it. We create the scenarios in our head. They haven't even looked at us and it stops us. Think it through. I just know if I just do that, if I just, whatever the case is, you just know someone's going to probably, probably. Now no one's even intimidated you. You got so intimidated by it. You didn't, you got to the point where you wouldn't even do anything. Could you imagine? Because they will, though. The stares, the looks. And then the rude talk. And then after the rude talk, the talk about you. And as it's the rude talk about you, you feel, and what are you doing? Okay, granted, it's nothing like getting publicly whipped till you bleed on the floor. But we could say that's like a tongue lashing. Think about what that means. And to be honest, does it hurt more when they say it straight at you or when they just talk about you in front of you? I remind you, wolves hunt in packs. For a reason. And they've come to steal and to kill and to destroy. Hebrews 12.4 says, You have not resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. Have any of you actually ever really gotten physically abused for your faith in Jesus? A couple of you have been at places where you may have felt like you were at that point. Jesus says, I want you to be aware of them. He doesn't say you're going to have to steer totally clear of them. You just need to be aware of them. Because the third one he's going to give us now as we bring this around shows us why. 
First, behold my ministry. Second, beware of men. Then third, you will be brought before governors and kings for my, for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you should speak. Wait a minute. God's behind this whole thing? Wait a minute, what? As a testimony, materials, as evidence to them? God is bringing evidence to governors and kings and to masses of unbelievers through this nastiness, through this discomfort. And I remind you, it's the religious community taking note of this that's actually drawing battle lines with us on the other side. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Think this through. Think this through with me. Do you think that the general populace here in London thinks warm and fuzzy about the church? I think that if we could iconic with anything or put an emoji on it, it would be an eye-rolling one at best. Oh, brother. Irrelevant, stupid, archaic, fairy tale. Put your words there. Irritating, blah de blah de blah Or maybe they may have taken it to step beyond that to be a little bit more antagonistic, and they'll say, do you ever see that guy on TV? Like, that guy represents all of us, right? That came driving in in the Bentley, and of course he's got the, you know, 3,000, you know, like the guy wears a suit that if he sold it, we'd make our year's salary with it. You know, I mean, we get that, right? And you know, they're like, oh, well, what about that guy? And what about the priest in this? And what about that? Like, like we know any of these guys, right? Or like, like you know, like, what do you think, you know? I mean, it's funny because like coming from Chicago, initially someone was like, oh, hey, do you know Jimmy Brown? Jimmy Brown, I know like 12 Jimmy Browns. You know, oh, you're from America. Oh, do you know so-and-so? There are 370 million people in America. Like, I'm going to know every one of them? Well, you're a Christian. What about that guy in Zimbabwe? I don't know what I know about. I've never been to Zimbabwe. I can barely say it. And he goes, listen, how do I get to those people? Well, if they have a problem with a group of people, and that group of people rises up against me, who do you think is going to take notice of that? The group of people who have a problem with the church. And if they have a problem with the church, you know, and again, I'm not saying we declare war on the church. I'm saying those that have no interest in Jesus Christ have a form of godliness but deny his power. And they kind of rise up and say, don't you believe in that Bible? Don't you do all this? Stuff? And they kind of stand up. And the world that has a problem with them sees them have a problem with us. I think they're going to be interested in what we might have to say. But we have to be willing then to have a backbone to actually handle the situation so that they can do that. So he says, so listen, when they do rise up like this, you're going to be brought. Hey, look, you're going to become a big deal to like leaders. You're going to be sitting before Cameron. You're going to sit before the queen. That's what he says, right? He says governors and kings. Imagine it's like, yeah, what I really want is if I could have five minutes with Queen Elizabeth, wouldn't that be so great? Sure, but you'll be shackled when you're there. (coughs) And they'll say, well, what do you have to say about yourself? Right. Okay. well, that takes us to our third one. But understand, just because someone brings out resistance doesn't mean God's not behind it. To be honest, he is bring he is behind it because it's going to take that for us to stand up. Because what people are really looking for is somebody with a backbone. Why do you think America is getting behind some of those crazy people right now that are petitioning themselves for votes? Notice I'm not saying anyone particular, you know, 
And they all drive me crazy. I'm like, I've never, I mean, like, I've always been happy to be here, beloved, but I've never been so happy to be here. You know, and I kind of, I look at that and I think, well, these guys are crazy. They're just crazy. But what do they have that people like? They have a spine. Hey, Hitler had a spine too. I'll grant you that. But people got behind it because they had one. People get behind cold leaders because they have spines. And we're like jellyfish going, oh, I don't know if I really believe that. or I don't know what I believe. And people are like, oh, you're so indefinitive. I don't know what to do with you. And this guy's like, well, I don't care. This is what I think. Even if it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong, it's right. You know, and you're like, people are like, whoa, at least he thinks something and he believes it. I mean, no doubt he believes it. She believes it. I think. And he's like, what, what, what would happen if the church grew a spine? We're supposed to be warriors. We become ballerinas at best. Hey, actually, ballerinas, props, man, they're strong. But I don't want to diss anything else because I know that all y'all in different kinds of dance and I don't see any ballerinas. So I had to pick the one I didn't think anyone was here. <clears throat> you get the idea. And God says, look, at, I'm going to present you as evidence. But uh, here's the cool part about evidence. You're not the attorney. You're just the evidence. You are in the hands of the attorney. So stop freaking out. And that's exactly our third one. So listen. Behold your ministry. Beware of men. And be at peace with his means. This is what he says. They'll deliver you up. Don't worry about how or what you should speak. Yeah. That's natural. You know what happens the moment something like that happens. You are rehearsing in your head every word you're going to say. Right? And you're like, you're playing it out, right? You're like, you know, you got the scene, and it's like, Judge, whoever, Judy, Wapner, whoever's, right? They're kind of there, and you're like, you're going to make sure you got an airtight case, and you're going to watch by the time you're done, you're like, balls, all victorious, and they're crumbling, and they're like, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm unworthy, you know, and all this is happening. And he goes, listen, don't worry about the how or the what. How you'll present it or what you're going to say. Wait a minute. Isn't so much of what church is about these days about preparing you with the how and the what? And look, at, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be a workman who need not be ashamed. You need to be a workman who need not be ashamed. Rightly, rightly dividing the word of God, the word, the word of truth. But it's God's job and your evidence. You are to be evidence. And if I'm not going to be spacey, and if I'm going to be sober, and I'm not going to be careless, but I'm going to be conscious... And those are commands. And he says, look at, don't freak out when you're delivered up. Let me tell you why. Notice the how or what, verse 19. And he tells us exactly that, the what and then the how. The what? It will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. It'll be given to me. I don't have to worry about what because God's going to give it to me. Sure. But does it make you uncomfortable that he tells you in that hour? Are those unhappy words? No, no, no. See, that's the way I would... Initially, when I hear that, my first thought is, whoa, 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 whoa. I would like them the moment it happens, right? Now is good. But listen to the freedom in that. God's like, I'm not going to tell you no. Because if God told you, Cam's in a situation, and she's going to stand before the queen, and she has to give her defense in two days. And Jesus says today, Cam, here's what you have to say. What does she have to do for the next two days? Freak out about saying it right. Right? She's like, what if I forget it now? What if I put the words wrong? What if I accidentally put a knot in there? And you know how bad that gets. You know, I mean, think about it. What if I say something wrong? And he's like, look at what I need you to do is focus on me, not on it. Now, that's almost impossible, except God take us over. 
And he goes, so listen, I'm the one who put you in this situation anyways, because you have a backbone. They've risen against you. They're trying to litigate against you. So trust me. I know what I'm doing. Trust my means. Be at peace with my means. And I remind you, you're just a sheep. I'm the shepherd. You're just evidence. I'm the lawyer. That's the good news. You are in my hands. So don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll give it to you then. When? When you won't have time to mess it up. You know what I've learned about the beauty of the Holy Spirit speaking? Sometimes he speaks by saying little. Have you noticed that? You're in, you want to talk to someone and you like, it gets to that point where it's like contentious and it's almost like an argument. And you just know you're going to reach in and it's like, bam! You know, it's like the atom bomb of reality. And they're going to be like quivering on the floor. Okay, you're right. I'm stupid. Right? You think that's what's going to happen. And then you reach in because you got it. You reach in and where'd it go? Where'd it, did you ever do that? And it's like it fell out of your head and you're like, oh my goodness, I just went into a coma. What just happened? What just happened? The Holy Spirit just happened. Because what the Holy Spirit says is, look, you might have won the argument if you were arguing with you. But you weren't arguing with you. And this isn't about winning an argument. It's about winning a soul. And so silence is really helpful. And can I say, as a musician, rests are part of music as much as the notes. Because if you don't have those, nothing breathes. And if nothing breathes, you can't even take it in. Imagine it's like, David, we've got this 30-minute tap piece. It goes like this. For 30 minutes. By the time he's done, he's going to be in a coma at best. It's like, you know, it's like I remember seeing these guitarists, and they were kind of known for playing fast. And for the first 10 minutes, it was very impressive. But sooner or later, you can only play so fast for so long. But it was like, okay, now what? A guy finally went, mm, bent a string, and everyone went mental. Because he did something different than just. It was like, wow, that was really great. But we want to do that. And sometimes what the Holy Spirit does is he goes, beep, beep, beep. And I don't normally like those moments because there's a part of me, I'm kind of like the dog with the, you know, the choker chain. Going, and there's the fence and, you know, I want to bite you. And God's like, no, 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 settle down, tiger, settle down. You're the sheep, not the wolf. Uh, but sometimes the Holy Spirit does the other. And those are the ones we like the most, right? Where we don't have anything to say, and we open our mouth, and like glory falls out. And we're like, oh man, I thought I was going to like spit something nasty, and like stained glass is coming out of my mouth. This is, and you're like, oh, that was good. The problem is we walk away, and they're like, "Mm, I got to write that down. Because, man, I said something good. You didn't, you know, you were a mouth. Like John the Baptist, he's a voice. Don't worry about it. What I need you to do instead is focus on me. Let me speak or not speak when is time. And you're like, how about this? I was looking for the words and I couldn't find them. And it says, look, he'll give you in that hour what you should speak. Apparently, that's not the hour then, is it? You ever have it like you, like you want to call someone, but it's like, God, give me something to say. And, and you're like, I don't have anything. God's like, well, maybe you shouldn't call right now. And there are times where someone's like, hey, do you want to do something about that? Do you want to say something? I'm like, to be honest, the Lord hasn't given me anything to say, and I don't want to just call to say something. And unless I know that it's the Lord saying it, it would be wiser for me not to call at all. But it's not just the what. It's the how. And here's the part you could forget, or I could. For it's not you who speak, but it's the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. 
So here's the cool thing. What God, what the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to possess as a spirit is a mouth. So what he's looking for is a mouth to use. And he was hoping to use yours. So here's the cool part. It's like a jersey. You're going to go play some sport. For me, like, for instance, basketball, a sport I do very much enjoy playing. Haven't done it in a while, and it's evident. But when you put on the jersey, all you want it to do is to move with you. Let the athlete do the work. Let the jersey enjoy the ride. And that's what we are. The Holy Spirit put us on as a jersey and said, let me do the work. Enjoy the ride. So don't worry about what. I'll give it to you when you need it. And if you don't get it, and I didn't give it to you, try not to talk. When you don't have anything that you know God wants to say, nothing's a really good option. I know I'm saying that because I need to hear it. On the other side of it, it's not just the what he's going to give you. He's actually going to do the work. He'll do the talking. It'll be the spirit of our father speaking in us. And if you want to rehearse and rehearse and rehearse, in the end of it all, you end up victorious instead of God ends up victorious. Isn't that true? I mean, in the end of it all, they're all like, man, you it. Instead of, wow, I need Jesus, which is really what we should want. So listen, as we bring this to prayer, we're to do this. As he sends us now to the believers. Now, who do you know in your life right now you have contact with that is a believer, that's calling themselves a Christian? But there's something about them that has no readiness of Christ's return. There's no excitement to be with Jesus. There's no hunger for heaven. Just kind of like a, you know, that kind of robotic thing we get when we walk onto a train. Kind of like that's life for them. But wasn't that life before we knew Jesus? They're kind of living like that. Like, what if God sent you there this week? What if God sent me there this week? To someone in, it's like, look at the Lord is coming. Now, look at I recognize this. I'm going to behold my situation. I know that if I were to tell you that, you could go online and find a whole bunch of people to tell you the opposite. You could go to churches that will tell you, oh, yeah, whatever. Just make it up as you go along. God's going to applaud you for your creativity. Didn't he give it to you in the first place? Sure, he gave you a hand, too, but it doesn't mean you're supposed to smack yourself in the face so you're unconscious. There are going to be wolves out there. But behold your ministry. Go to the sheep and let them know he's coming. When is he coming? Well, no one knows the day or the hour. Could be right now. Do you really want to regret the next minute? But not only behold your ministry, beware of the men that might use these tools. But here's the good news. Even if they use litigation or intimidation, don't back down. Because that is the opportunity to stand before the greatest of people, if you will, the most influential of people, and let them know you really believe what you believe. Do you really believe I'm wrong? I don't know you. I can tell you whether it's wrong. And then be at peace with his means. His means might be that he'll bring you before people. You're like, yep, I've learned this. In the end, people will see Jesus in me and that will bear profound results. 
That'll be both, by the way, to the resistance and to the rescue. But I want to hunger for the rescue enough that the resistance doesn't, well, it doesn't deter me. And from this point on, Jesus will start talking about the dividing line and why that's so imperative. That will be next week. But beloved, please hear me as we pray and prepare for communion. What if that's you today? What if that's you? What if today the problem has been you realize the reason why you wouldn't even have an excitement to do this is because you really haven't been wise as a serpent. You've been instead deluded, distracted. There's so much of the world that has caught your eyes and so much of it sparkles that we forget about the eternal purpose God has placed us here on. And what we've become then in the essence of it all is, to be honest, a joke. And I wouldn't blame the world for laughing. You know, in sports, one thing I've learned is that in sports that involve a ball, if the ball is not involved, it doesn't matter where you go, it isn't going to get anywhere. So you're playing rugby and you run into the try line. You don't get any points unless there's a ball in your hand. Just running in there doesn't do anything. You can kick as hard as you can. If there's not a ball there and nothing goes into the net, there's no points involved in that. You can scream and yell and slide on your knees and and do all of those other grandstandy things that people do. But the church for so long, it's like we haven't been carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ and toting who he really is. But we think we're scoring all these points. No wonder why the world thinks we're silly. We are silly. And you know why? Because we're convoluted. Instead of conscious. And because we're deluded. Instead of undiluted. But imagine if it was like, you know what? I really, really want to be clear on my mission. And I know that's going to bear resistance. That's what men are going to do. And even people, by the way, that are going to call themselves Christians are like, man, you've gone off the deep end. You are so mental. But you know what? In the end of it all, I'm not here to please you. I'm here to please Jesus. And I know my surrender does so. And in your resistance, God's going to use even that, especially that, to bring other people to to take notice. And as they take notice, God's going to do amazing things. Last thing is we go to prayer. In 1 Samuel, Saul, by the way, the king, has gotten himself in a place where he's completely latent, fat and lazy, if you will. But it's his son, Jonathan. Son, Jonathan, by the way, they're, so they're outnumbered. They don't even have any weapons except Jonathan, Saul's son, and Saul. They're the only two that have weapons. Everybody else, because the Philistines so control them, they can't even sharpen their plowshares, their, their picks, without, by the way, going for this. And they have to go to the Philistines for it. But the Philistines were about to attack, and they have iron chariots. I mean, they are so outgunned. And so Saul's sitting with a small group of people freaked out. But Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and he says, you know what? God's not limited to save by many or few. If God really wants to do this, he could do it through us, right? And the armor bearer's like, sure. So he goes, all right, we're going to go up and we're going to present ourselves to him. Imagine that. They're going to be like, and they're like, if they tell us to come on up, God's given us the victory. Just the two of them. And what I love is it says then that they, they say, hey, here we are. And they're like, well, why don't you come on up here then? And, Saul, and, and Jonathan's like, there's our cue. It says that the armor bearer came following him. Now, if you know anything about armor bearers, they kind of usually go front, in the front because they have the shield. 
But Jonathan's just like, come on, let's do this. And I love the fact that there's this guy and he's just like, look, in the face of all this complacency. But here's the amazing thing. Once Jonathan does this, Saul wakes up from this, if you will, and takes notice and employs his army. And then, listen, listen, and you've got to check it on your own. But here's, it's so beautiful. It says, then those that were Hebrews among the Philistines separated themselves from the Philistines and fought them. And then those that were hiding in the mountains because of the Philistines, came out of the mountains to fight them. And you know how that started? One person and his armor bearer that said, you know, God doesn't, he doesn't have to start a revival with a billion people. He could do it with one. But this is what needs to happen. What needs to happen is we have to be willing to stand in the face of that opposition and say we might think we're outgunned, but we are not outmatched because my God is the God who fights for us. And I'm going to stand there and in the end of it all, there are Christians right now that are so deep in the Philistines, they don't even know how deep they are. It's like, look at, we're going to take you, you need to be pulled out of this thing. And we could say, get out of that, get out of that. But to be honest, until we're willing to stand and say, you know what, Lord, bring me the victory on this, they're not going to want to. And then as they do, how beautiful it is that they pull themselves out and realize who the enemy is. And then those that are hiding stop being so fearful and they become bold. And doesn't that just look like a revival? God grant us such a spirit inside of us. Pray with me, would you please? God, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. And I thank you for what you've spoken to us today. No doubt, Lord, there is a challenge within us to come clean, to come clean with you. To actually seek God to stop, in essence, making camp with the enemy but instead to be delivered and to set ourselves apart. So God, I pray today, right now, for every one of us here, please, Lord, please put us in this place where we would be, as you call us here, to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, to be concerted, to be focused and full on. And God, I pray that you would spark within us the heart of a warrior that seeks to see people rescued from this apathy, from this internal leprosy to this place, God, where we would say, please, Lord, please use us as agents of rescue. And in that, God, I pray today for us as we declare, Jesus, you died on the cross for us. Clearly, you didn't have a problem standing tall. You didn't have a problem not bending You are a person of great conviction, unyielding to the opposition. May we recognize your death on the cross is what sets us free and your resurrection to give us that new life. And as your Holy Spirit is placed within us to make us different, will then make us different. We accept and proclaim that gift of Jesus upon us, claiming Jesus not only as our Savior, but as our Lord. We don't demand from you, Jesus. We surrender to you. And we say, use us as the evidence you intend, even in the face of opposition, even in the face of the wolves. And with that, God, I pray today that you would now liberate us from our own apathy, jar us, God, from our own numbness, and make us people today who are willing to say, yes, God, please, I'm yours. And as we prepare for communion for the last couple of minutes, may we come clean with you now and say, Lord, make us that, I pray. I commit this to you, and I thank you for the privilege of being able to seek you and the beauty and magnificence of the ministry. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Hey, beloved, we are going to take communion. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd like you to partake it with us. We have a special treat today. We brought some flatbread from Sardinia. I guess they make that there. They're known for it. So that's part of communion. But there is also gluten-free for those of you who are uh, gluten-free people. Um, But listen, listen. If you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, might I suggest you do so? You just say, yes, Jesus, I accept that gift on the cross and I confess you as the Lord of my life. Lord, if that be the case with anyone in here, Lord, move them to do so. Even now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.